This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. Uh, I'm pleased to introduce Dr. Juan Jose Martin Gonzalez. He teaches at the University of uh, Malaga in Andalusia. His uh, research interests include Victorian literature, uh, maritime and postcolonial literature. He has uh, recently published uh, his book titled Transoceanic Perspectives in Amitav Ghosh's Ibis Triology at Palgrave Maximilian. And we are here to talk about this new book. Thank you, Dr. Martin Gonzalez, for being with us here today. Hello. Thanks to you, Gaki, for your kind invitation. I'm very pleased to be here. Um, I would like to start at the beginning. Uh, Amitav Ghosh occupies such an interesting place in the post-colonial and contemporary literature. How did you come to be interested in Amitav Ghosh and why did you choose to write uh, about this, this trilogy in particular? Well, I've first been acquainted with Amitav Ghosh by reading uh, the first novel in the trilogy, Sea of Poppies. Right when I when I was an early uh, PhD student, I was dealing with I was studying Neo Victorian literature, and that is uh, when I first I first became acquainted with the with the author Casey of Poppies. Even if uh, <clears throat> Amitav Ghosh okay, does not feature very often within Neo Victorian maritime Neo Victorian uh, studies, it is a novel. Okay, the first one uh, has been widely studied by New Victorian scholars. So that is where uh, that is when I first became um, acquainted with the with the author. So I just started to read uh, the trilogy. I became fascinated by uh, the complexity, okay, and the uh, and the ambitions of Amitav Ghosh in the trilogy. I was um, Totally astonished because of uh, because of the um, by the uh, vast array of topics that the trilogy touches upon, so I just became fascinated with the author. So I kept on reading, reading, and reading, and that is when I uh, when I uh, finally decided to pursue my PhD thesis in maritime studies, 
that was the field of my of my um, of, of my PhD thesis. I decided to devote one whole chapter to Amitabh Ghosh. So that is the genesis of the of the book. Even if my PhD thesis, or rather the focus of my thesis, was a bit broader, okay, I I um, adopted a more perhaps a more global approach because I also devoted a chapter to um, um, transatlantic or Atlantic studies. There was another chapter in the thesis uh, devoted to only to Indian Ocean studies. So what I did okay, after completing my PhD thesis in 2019 now uh, was to, um, um, to expand okay, that chapter on Indian Ocean studies into a full-length monograph on Amitabh Ghosh by utilizing uh, the critical tenets of maritime criticism. So that is the, the origin of, of the book. Um, thank you for sharing with us. Um, uh, we talk about Amitav Kosh when we talk about uh, Indian Ocean in particular, the travels, the contact, uh, uh, the immigrations, uh, the emigrations, uh, and also the histories and anthropology. Uh, but you choose to analyze these work from a trans-oceanic perspective, uh, which, which you have just recently talked about the Atlantic studies and the Indian Ocean studies. Um, what is the importance of um, the trans-oceanic uh, analysis of his work? Okay. Um, in the case of Amitabh Ghosh, in particular, uh, he's an, uh, an author who's... Um, diasporic consciousness and whose uh, cosmopolitanism and uh, whose um, pull or attraction towards different cultures, nationalities have been uh, pointed out by many critics. Okay, he, he's an author who has been repeatedly qualified as a cosmopolitan author, as an author having this um, pull towards uh, different nations, different places. He's an Indian author, but he's an author who lives in the United States. Uh, he has been often compared with um, Chinua Achebe, for example, this Nigerian, the Nigerian uh, writer, who also had this, this pull towards other cultures, Anglophone cultures in particular. So I do think that for uh, a writer such as Gosh, uh, a transoceanic lens can be very uh, productive. Even if he's an Indian writer, uh, much of his fiction obviously deals with India, but I think the geographical scope of much of his fiction uh, far um, exceeds India as a nation. I think his fiction is characterized by a totally global vision. So I think a transoceanic lens can be very productive for a writer such as him. And then... Um, Thinking more broadly, okay, when I think about why a transoceanic uh, lens is useful, I think that from a, from the point of view of postcolonial studies, um, I think transoceanic perspectives allow us to go beyond the terracentrism that has characterized postcolonial studies. Perhaps you may agree with me on the fact and this, this 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 has been signaled by many by many uh, critics okay that postcolonial studies is very terracentric okay it is very much very much focused on land right so perhaps it's interesting to to uh, think about colonial relations from a different angle from a, a different perspective right and also 
and still talking about post-colonial thought, okay, something that has been um, stated by, again, by many specialists, is that post-colonialism has been uh, somehow exhibiting some sim symptoms of exhaustion, have been having the, I don't know, the feeling that, I, I don't know if you, if you have felt this, uh, that post-colonialism usually gravitates around, constantly about the, about, around the same concepts, you know, third space, orientalism, hybridity, Okay, we are always dealing with the same uh, brainy concepts, which very often over rely on French extraterrorism, right? On too much theory, but they too often forget about the real material problems that many post-colonial societies are still undergoing today under the after effects of colonialism. So perhaps adopting a transoceanic approach okay, can uh, perhaps reorient Okay, the purposes of post-colonial thought as a whole. So that is another advantage okay, that I say uh, that I have identified in, in using maritime studies. And um, and then from from a historical um, from a more historical perspective, maritime studies allowed to contest the category of the nation, which is like a um, a quite uh, this is actually one of one of the basic corollaries. corollaries one of the key ideas of maritime criticism. Okay, nationalist histories are often incomplete because they do not pay um, sufficient uh, attention. They do not sufficiently account for the contributions of migrants, refugees, travelers. So I think that a transoceanic lens may help to visualize okay, the transnational connections between different nations, different histories, different continents even. And uh, absolutely, yeah, and, and 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 I do firmly believe that a transoceanic lens may provide, may also provide political possibilities to think beyond uh, boundaries, beyond rigid um, national boundaries, cultural boundaries, especially those boundaries that have been um, informing global global politics recently. It really worries me that. Um, in global politics in recent decades, we have uh, witnessed a rise in exacerbated nationalisms, the building of walls, um, the creation of borders. Okay, just to name a couple of examples at hand, we have Donald Trump's office in the US, um, or the, con the consummation of the Brexit in the UK. There is another reinstatement of ma uh, more borders. So in this sense, I think that thinking on literature and culture in a more transoceanic way may hopefully help us to make um, a strong case for the possibilities of fluid boundaries, transcultural understanding, the tending of bridges. So I don't know Absolutely. how I answered your question. Yeah, no, 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 that was, um, that completely answers my question. Um, um, that leads also uh, very nicely into my next question um, is that um, uh, transoceanic connections in the Indian Ocean question, and I quote here, rigid national and contemporary global politics. Um, and this, uh, this, this, uh, this, uh, 
leads you uh, in a way to call the 19th century as an era of proto globalization can you can you tell us what is proto globalization and how is it different from the globalization that we see today okay um i just think that one of the strongest points of the trilogy the three novels is that even if they are set in in a very specific time and space okay the three novels are covers they, they cover just um a few years they cover the years between 1838 which is the prelude to the first opium war and 1842 which is the actual uh, first opium war so it's a very precise location and space but i do think that one of the main potentials of the trilogy is that they can be read in a diachronic way what i mean with this is that even if the novel is in in the early 19th century it mirrors it parallels many of the concerns many of the worries many of the features that characterize globalization today so that that is what i mean when i say that the novel somehow is characterized by a proto globalization in a sense that it um, traces the roots of contemporary globalization actually whenever we think about globalization it seems as if we are dealing with a very recent phenomenon but that is wrong and amitav ghosh himself has stated this in many in many interviews that globalization is actually very old okay we only have to have a look i think he claims he claimed in an in an interview in the in the indian television um when the first novel was published when sea of poppies was published back in 2008 that we only have to have a look at the uh crew lists in many ships that uh crossed the ocean between england and australia or indian in uh, be, uh, be, uh, between indian and australia or between england and australia right if we have a look at those uh crew lists perhaps the captain and the first mate and the second mate were british or european but the rest of the sailors were lascars there were sailors from the indian ocean so they came from india they came from east africa they came from mauritius south africa china um india so ships in the 19th century were already globalized they were already globalized spaces so when i when i think about the trilogy okay i can see it through i can somehow see in the trilogy many um many features that we see in contemporary globalization so that is what i mean with proto globalization it's somehow um much of what happens in the trilogy many of the relations that are established between the different uh um characters those transcultural uh, transcultural rela- relations somehow prefigure Okay, what we are witnessing today in our current globalization. So, I, so it's quite interesting this um, diachronic potential of the trilogy, right? And also, not o- not only considering the ship space as a, as a globalized space, if we think about the production of opium, which is very much reflected in the in the whole trilogy. Okay, when we read in the trilogy that opium. It was was obviously manufactured in India and then was it was shipped over to to China. 
So there is the prelude to the first opium war. But the instructions about how to produce opium, the exact quantities that should be placed in each shipment when it was manufactured, were given from a headquarter in the heart of the British Empire in England, in London. So don't you think that this is, this in a sense, parallels much how multinational, multinational corporations were today? Many multinational corporations, they have their headquarters in European or Western cities, but they have their factories in many third world, and I'm placing third world between many embedded commerce, many countries in the global south. Why? Because they, they are making the most of, they are uh, taking advantage of the cheap labor uh, that they can get in those in those countries. So this, there is a stark parallel uh, there. So I don't know if, um, that is what I mean with proto-globalization. So I think that the novel prefigures much about how globalization works today. And it, and it tells a lot about uh, the actual roots of current globalization. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Um, yes, you're completely uh, right about this. And um, this brings to uh, the next, next term that I would like to talk about is cosmopolitanism. Um, this term is not value neutral to us today. Uh, it's absolutely associated with the positive effects of, of exchanges. But when we talk about Indian Ocean, is is that we often see cosmopolitanism, but a very uh, in 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 the societies that are very hierarchical, uh, based on races, based on ethnicities, based on languages, um, and also uh, gender uh, hierarchies. Um, and you uh, raise these concerns when you talk about uh, the cosmopolitanism of the Indian Ocean in 19th century. Uh, can you tell us, uh, for the benefit of the listeners, what are these concerns that we need to constantly bear in mind when you're talking about cosmopolitanism in the 19th century? Hmm. Yes, absolutely. I, I do think that we need um, a newer understanding of what cosmopolitanism means. It's true that it is a word that often invokes um, positive connotations, doesn't it? Okay, whenever we think of a cosmopolitan subject, we probably think of uh, um, a subject, an individual who has a privileged position of the world, probably a subject who, uh, who whose cultural background is uh, polycultural or belongs to more than one culture, right? But that that's what, that that was not the case for many subjects, for many of the characters that populate the Indian uh, the uh, the Ibis trilogy by Amitabh Ghosh. Many characters in the trilogy are definitely cosmopolitan because they belong to different cultural, linguistic, um, ethnical backgrounds. But that's that that's, that not entail that there were 
empowered or that they were uh, privileged. Quite the contrary. Many characters were cosmopolitan against their will. And that is the case, for example, of indentured laborers, many indentured laborers who were forced to leave India for Mauritius or for South Africa, even for the Caribbean, right? Uh, this entailed a lot of suffering, displacement, uh, uprootedness uh, for them. So they were probably, they were cosmopolitan because they eventually um, acquired many cultural traits from, uh, from different cultural backgrounds, uh, but they did so. They, they did so against their will, right? So it was a, like a kind of a kind of enforced cosmopolitanism, right? Uh, we have the brilliant example of of the one of the protagonists of the trilogy, Diti, this uh, female Indian peasant. Okay, who, she's an upper caste, and she's forced to to leave India for Mauritius, and then in the second novel. Uh, in the trilogies, very beautiful how after uh, many years living there in Mauritius, because Mauritius was what it was, if I'm not mistaken, it was a French colony, and later on it became an English colony, I think. So, um, yeah, so it's very beautiful in the second in the second uh, novel of the trilogy of River of Smoke. It's really interesting to see how Diti is an Indian, uh, it, it used to be an Indian, an Indian upper caste uh, Hindu subject. She has internalized much of the uh, um, Mauritian French culture. So yes, she's cosmopolitan, okay, but this process of cosmopolitanism has um, uh, meant for her lots of, a lot of suffering okay, and, and displacement and uprootedness. So perhaps I think I do think that the novel um, records this changing, be this changing concern about what cosmopolitanism means and what what it involves, and not everything that it involve, involves being cosmopolitan is necessarily positive. So I think that is something that that um, comes up in many of the characters that are narrated in the trilogy. They are cosmopolitan, but they are not necessarily. Um, empowered by that. Yes, uh, that that's very interesting, and I think there's also this interplay of modernity and uh, postcoloniality that informs your book. You have, in fact, uh, cited Enrique Dussel, who is an Argentinian and Mexican philosopher, uh, to say that Ibis trilogy is a representation of a transmodern novel rather than a postcolonial novel. Uh, can you uh, tell us what you understand by the difference between the transmodern and the postcolonial? <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, transmodernism is a, a really um, interesting term okay, that has recently um, found its way through literary and cultural um, criticism. Some critics are using the term to denote um, what is coming after postmodernism. Okay, in instead of using post postmodernism, which is not a very reader friendly term. So many critics have used the term transmodernism okay, to denote, okay, to refer to the literature that is being produced in the recent um, decades. Critics are still arguing about the literature produced in the last decades. Uh, they are arguing that that literature is no longer postmodern, but is 
something else that is still working out. Okay, this is a broader issue, which is not relevant to my book yet, but, but anyway. And then in more in relation with global and colonial studies, um, the term transmodernism has been used by several scholars to denote the idea that modernism, or, or, or rather than modernism, modernity, was not an exclusively Western phenomenon, but it was rather a global phenomenon. Okay, modernity was born um, at a very more or less specific uh, time. It was a global state of affairs that materialized in different ways and in different incarnations in different parts of the globe, not only the West, obviously, right? So this is truly okay, to, um, to develop Okay, this thinking that is actually one of the key ideas in uh, uh, from the uh, from the uh, the uh, the critic Enrique uh, Enrique Dussel. This is surely an urgent task, right? And many some scholars have suggested uh, considering the Irish trilogy as an example of the transmodern novel instead of the postcolonial novel. But I'm just not so sure that we should um, so easily replace. Uh, a post-colonial lens for a transmodern lens to analyze the trilogy. Because, after all, the term post-colonial means after colonial or after colonialism. And that is one of the key purposes in post-colonial thought, isn't it? To deconstruct the legacy of colonialism in post-colonial societies. Of course, we have also to take into account, uh, you know, historical specificities. Okay, I mean, Gosh himself has uh, um, disavowed the term post-colonial because he thinks that um, very easily erases uh, the specificities of different nations. Of course, we are aware that the post-colony of India is not the same as the post-colony of Nigeria, for example. We have to pay attention to historical specificities but I do still think that um, that we should not abandon the post-colonial lens in order to analyze the trilogy because much of the trilogy has to do with with uh, the legacy of colonialism in uh, in India and in other post-colonial uh, societies I think that utilizing okay, and the post-colonial lens rather than the transmodern lens um, allows us to to see that the uh, material inequalities that still afflict many nations today because of the after effects of of um, of um, colonialism so I think a post-colonial lens is vital to carry out that that project okay but still that okay I am aware that this transmodern uh, approach, Okay, it's, uh, it's really interesting, and it is, as I tell you, it is uh, an interesting task okay, to make the case for this, this idea that modernity was not a Western phenomenon at all, but a more global phenomenon. Yeah, and that that's such an um, interesting way to look at it. Um, since we are almost at the end of this episode, I would like to know about your future projects. What are you working on now? Well, um, I consider myself still uh, an early career researcher, right? So I just finished my PhD in uh, this uh, uh, 
few years ago. So I'm still uh, working on uh, working out now what I'd like to do next. Definitely, I would like to explore a bit further Indian Ocean studies. I think it's a fascinating and thriving uh, field in which I would like to work um, more in the future. Something that I became, uh, that I have become fascinated in the last years are the connections between Africa and India, or Africa and Asia more broadly, or, or to use a term that has been used by some scholars, Afrasian connections. It's quite interesting that w when we look at um, Africa, we, we, I mean, we Europeans, we see Africa, or we often perceive Africa in relation to or in opposition to Europe, but never in relation to Asia. So it would be quite interesting to, to pay attention to analyze the cultural transactions connections between both continents. Right? I think Amitav Ghosh already does so in, um, with some characters, some plots in the novel, the character of Sadiq Bey, for example, it's a very important character he's of Egyptian origin, so he somehow represents those cultural connections between Africa and Asia. Perhaps I would like to look at those connections, but from the African point of view instead of the Asian point of view, which is the case of Amitav Ghosh's fiction. Uh, I have been looking at... at um, some authors, some African authors who have um, paid attention to those Afrasian relationships. For example, Ngugi Wafiongo, he has he published a very interesting uh, essay that is entitled, if I remember uh, well, uh, Asia in My Life, in which he thinks about the presence of um, Asians and Indians uh, in, in Kenya. Uh, or, for example, um, um, the recent Nobel Prize winner, Adurasa Gurnah, he is also very concerned with, with this connection between uh, Africa and Asia. So that is something that I'd like to explore in the future. Um, and then another maritime figure in which I have become virtually obsessed are Laskers. I think they are a fascinating, a fascinating maritime figure. And I would like to, to explore a bit in the future the representation of, of Laskas in contemporary literature. I think they are um, a shining exponent of, of transcultural solidarity and understanding. Absolutely. So those are, those are my ideas for the, for the future. So there, is lots, there are lots to, to do and to read. Those are some very wonderful ideas, I think. Uh, I wish you the be very best for your project, and I hope to hear from you when your new book is published. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot.